0: You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit PleasurePodcasts.com.
1: Welcome to American Sex, the award-winning podcast dedicated to challenging those puritanical, backward-ass ideals that we have in the U.S. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Ken Melvoin-Berg. We're sexuality educators pleasure advocates, and ridiculous, sadistic kinksters. We're also non-monogamously married to each other. So strap in or strap one on. In this house, your pleasure is power, your kink is customizable, and your subversive perversions are revolutionary. Welcome, my friends, to episode 208 of American Sex. I'm your host, Sunny Megatron, clinical sexologist, kink educator, and host of the Showtime original series, Sex with Sunny Megatron. This week, we're talking managing mental health within consensually non-monogamous relationships with Kate Lurie. Kate is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, LGBTQ. And sex worker communities. Kate is also a certified sex educator and EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model for the treatment of trauma. And she's been practicing psychotherapy since 2003. Kate's been featured in all sorts of major media, from BuzzFeed to podcasts to magazines, and she's a frequent public speaker too. Kate is also the author of the newly released book, "Open Deeply: A Guide to Building." building conscious, compassionate, open, Relationships. Now, in this episode, we talk about managing mental health within non-monogamy, specifically how mood and personality disorders like anxiety, depression, BPD, NPD, etc., can impact non-monogamous/slash polyamorous relationships. Now, according to 2020 statistics, one in five American adults experiences mental illness, and when we add consensual non-monogamy. To the mix, it can get really complex, especially as Kate points out, because consensual non-monogamy tends to poke at our unresolved attachment injuries more than monogamy does. And we're also factoring in more people. Now, one thing to keep in mind when you're listening to this conversation, even though we are applying these concepts specifically to non-monogamous relationships, a lot of what we talk about can absolutely apply to kinky, monogamous, and all sorts of different types of relationship styles too. This is actually a crossover conversation from the other podcast that I co-host with Kate Lurie called Open Deeply, which is the same name as her book. This was one of a six-episode series about non-monogamy. Specifically, this is part four. So if you dig this conversation, I highly encourage you to listen to the other five parts. And of course, they can all be listened to as standalone episodes, but if you listen to them as a package, you won't miss any of the nuance, the caveats, and all of the other areas that we cover. I do want to add as well, before you listen, that this conversation that you're about to hear is not therapy, it's not a replacement for therapy, and if you find things coming up while you're listening, please practice your own self-care or call the National Helpline at 988. And before we get to that conversation, you know what we got to do? That noise means it is time to wash the balls, which is housekeeping here on American Sex and... As it's been lately, this is going to be short and sweet and quick. First, did you know that American Sex has a kink-friendly Discord server where you can continue these eye-opening, shame-free conversations and learn from others too? Oh, and it's free. So come on by. I've also got a free kink negotiation and scene starter mini workbook for you too that you can download. Again, absolutely for free. And if you're like, all right, so where can I do it? Give me the link. Just go to the episode description, aka the show notes, you're going to find all of those links, the discord, the workbook, all of Kate's links, uh, the link to open deeply everything you can imagine, plus our Patreon page if you want to support this podcast and the work that I do. And if you're like, yeah, I I do want to support you. And thank you. I dig what you're doing. One thing you can do that is absolutely free and will only cost you a moment of your time is give this podcast, American Sex, a review in whatever streaming service you're using, right? Whether it's iTunes, Spotify, most of them have some sort of review something or other. And while you're there, make sure you've hit that subscribe button too, because that also helps the podcast and my work as well. And it's appreciated because, as I've talked about many times, conversations about sex ed, identity, LGBTQ, kink, anything non-traditional when it comes to sexuality or relationships, they are suppressed On social media and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse with time. I tell you, it's killing me. Uh, So anything you can do, whether it's uh, leave that review or tweet out your favorite episode. uh, If you frequent subreddits about kink and non-monogamy and you think one of the episodes will have some insight to somebody's question that you see in the forum, go ahead and link it. All of that stuff is really appreciated because I feel like social media and the internet is kind of out to get us, but that's a whole different story. Uh, Thank you for that. And with that all said, these balls are very, very squeaky clean. So here is Kate Larie on mental health within polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. So last episode, we talked about attachment injuries and triggers and grounding skills. We got into the EPIC communication model with non-monogamy. And this episode is about mood disorders and personality disorders within non-monogamy. So, Kate, I think a lot of our regular listeners, they already know who you are, but for the new folks, can you catch them up to speed as to why you are such an expert on these topics?
0: Yeah. So I'm Kate Laurie. I'm a sex positive psychotherapist and I just wrote a book called Open Deeply. And at this point, we're just kind of going through a lot of the different Parts that are covered in Open Deeply. And part of what's covered is is mood disorders and personality disorders and how they affect consensual non-monogamy. The thing is, some people might think, why explore that? Does that really impact consensual non-monogamy? But when you think about the fact that according to the National Institute of Mental Health, just under 10% of the U.S. adults have a mood disorder. Then you start to realize that when you're non-monogamous and you have more than one partner, the chance that either you or a partner might have some kind of mental health issue is a super high probability. So I really feel like you can't avoid looking this bear straight in the eyes. So, And certainly being a therapist, as long as I have been, and specializing in non-monogamy as I do in my private practice... I see this coming up all the time. And it is one of the key things that can get in the way of, you know, two or more people enjoying their non-monogamous journey.
1: I love that we're having this conversation. I just want to really throw out there really quick for the folks listening along with us, our reminder that this podcast isn't therapy or a replacement for therapy, um, even though we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that you probably talk about in therapy. But while listening, if you find things coming up for you during the conversation that, you know, kind of hit you a little funny, practice your own self-care. What matters is you take care of you First. You know, Kate, like, I love this conversation because even when I read books about relationships that are more focused on the monogamous, very rarely do I hear about, okay, you know, like here's the framework, yada, yada. But now let's talk about if there are personality disorders or mood disorders or whatnot in the mix, if somebody has depression or anxiety or or whatnot, that usually isn't addressed. And it sure as hell, at least I don't hear it addressed and I consume a lot of educational material. I don't hear it addressed in the context of non-monogamy. So this is exciting. Thank you.
0: And as I think I've said probably many times before, you know, I've talked about how the biggest thing, the biggest thing that blocks two people from connecting, let alone more than two, is unresolved trauma, right? And a lot of times, you know, so if somebody has some kind of mental health issue, which today we're going to talk about mood disorders and personality disorders, a lot of times those disorders are related to trauma. And so the more you can understand them understand how to manage them the more that no longer becomes a block between you and someone else connecting or you and more than one person connecting so it's super important it's it's not something that we can get around like if we really want to have these rich connections in our life we have to understand these things and so much of our culture just, you know, in TV, et cetera, makes it look like, you know, if we just choose the right partner, love will be easy. And let's face it, in the United States, with everything that's going on in this country, so many of us have mental health issues. And let's just say before we get started that you don't need to be diagnosable to have symptoms that will impact your non-monogamous journey so a lot of times when we're talking we're not going to be talking just from the framework of people that are diagnosable it's just as important to just talk about people that have symptoms of anxiety depression you know borderline narcissism etc and so on
1: which i think you know in my unprofessional opinion Is most of us like we we dip into those traits at one time or another or more times, you know, so this is a very relevant conversation. And, you know, one thing I've always said that I like about non monogamy, even though it sucks in the moment is that it forces you to have those difficult conversations with your partner. So things that come up like jealousy or, you know, those difficult relationship conversations, relationship conflict, et cetera, that when we're in monogamous relationships are a lot easier, just kind of sweep under the rug and and pretend don't exist. And yeah, maybe they fester and then turn into things later, but that's a whole different podcast episode. But in non-monogamy we have frameworks and we've set a precedent that it's like, okay, to bring up these difficult conversations with our partners and in our relationships. But at the same time, you know, even in the long run, yeah, bringing these things up and clearing them up between you and your partners ends up being a good thing in the long run while you are bringing th- these things up it's awful. Like no one wants to have these difficult conversations and then add to it. Like if jealousy or other partners is triggering my attachment injuries or triggering my insecurity or my fear of abandonment, and then, you know, tickling whatever, you know, my anxiety, my depression, et cetera. Woo. That's a lot.
0: And so many books just talk about how to manage jealousy. They don't say, how do you manage jealousy when you have an anxiety disorder? Or how do you manage jealousy when you have heavy symptoms of borderline personality disorder? But this is getting closer to what the reality is a lot of times for a lot of people, you know, where they have, it's not just that they're jealous, it's that they're jealous and they also have a trauma history of being abandoned a lot or, you know, it's way more complicated than what a lot of books address. Uh, One thing that I want to say before we start getting into these different categories of talking about people that have anxiety or depression is let's at least note that the way someone might present if they have mental health issues, but they're an overgiver is very different than how someone might present if they have mental health issues and they tend to be self-entitled. And a lot, what I see in my practice is a lot of times with people with mental health issues, they do skew towards being one of those two types. Because a lot of times there's folks with mental health issues where they feel, you know, one reason somebody might be an overgiver is because they feel guilty about their mental health issues. So they're like, I'll compensate for my mental health issues by like overgiving and sacrificing myself and doing double duty because I know that my mental health issues put a strain on my partner or inconvenience my partner. And then there's A lot of people that are in the other category, because let's face it, if you're hurting inside, then sometimes you're so focused on your own pain, you literally don't notice the world around you. And so it's a lot of time. So it may be that you're being kind of self-focused just because you're in pain, or it could be that you have mental health issues, but you also are having some misogyny or you're mentally ill and you've got some You know, like narcissistic symptoms that are coupled with your depression. And so when you think about those two camps, it's really important because how you cope and and how you deal with things between those two camps is very different, whether you are dating the overgiver or you are the giver overgiver or you know you see so now we've got four con quadrants and it gets really complicated but anyway we'll do the best we can
1: I just want to jump in here and say off the bat I can't remember what episode it was but we did a whole episode devoted to overgivers to people who are self-entitled so Kate let's remind each other we'll figure out what episode number that was and put the the link in the show notes because I think for people who are like oh what is that overgiver thing that would be a really helpful episode to dive dive into those things
0: yeah i think it was like episode five but
1: i could be wrong yeah we'll put it in the show notes so those listening along if you're like what was it just go look in the show notes it's there
0: all righty so so maybe we can start with you know folks that have anxiety who are non-monogamous So, you know, if we think about anxiety, I think most people have a sense of what that is, but, you know, just reading off a few symptoms, you know, edginess, restlessness, fatigue, tiring, easily impaired concentration, poor focus, irritability. You might even have increased muscle aches and soreness, difficulty sleeping, but those are all some symptoms of anxiety, but within non-monogamy, I think it can show up as being very fearful and anxious that something could go wrong within non-monogamy. You know, a lot of people have those fears, but for somebody who has symptoms of anxiety or is diagnosable, everything gets cranked up. So, you know, somebody who's just a little bit nervous about when their partner's going to come home from a date, someone with heavy symptoms of anxiety may be literally having a panic attack. So it just gets way bigger, or they might literally be waking up, you know, with a night terror or something like that. That's related, you know, some nightmare about non-monogamy or something like that. It's just everything gets cranked up. So a lot of times what helps is structure, clear agreements, boundaries. I've noticed with some of my clients that have a lot of anxiety, if they just know when their partner's going to come home, like I'm going to come home between 2 and 2.30, that really can lower, that can be the difference between a partner with anxiety that is happy when you come home versus Somebody that might be having a panic attack, you know, like having this kind of structure, clear agreement, like clear relationship agreements and boundaries really help defining expectations, all of that, you know, taking breaks if it's ethically possible can help manage anxiety, going slow, all of this. So now I I feel like we should note right here, I could keep on going on with what helps, but I feel like I should say even at this point. That what happens to the partner that is dating someone with anxiety within non-monogamy is that they feel controlled. You know, the person with anxiety is just trying to manage their anxiety. They're not trying to control their partner, but in their effort to like create a schedule and have a clear agreement and all these things that help their anxiety, their partner is just like, dude, you are so micromanaging me right now.
1: And I think about like, I identify with the anxiety thing. And I think for me, like we all have anxiety for different reasons, you know, and and therefore different things that we need. And for me, I have figured out that a lot of my anxiety actually stems from like my neurodivergence. It's not, you know, I'm afraid of emotionally something's going to, you're going to leave me. It's more like. I have to manage my day and like executive functions really hard. And I don't know what I don't know what to expect. And, you know, when my schedules change or my expectations change or I have surprises, it really disorients me. And it's got really nothing to do with like, and it's because I feel you don't love me and I'm nervous. It's more like I can't manage my day. So for me, like identifying Why I was anxious? Because for many years I was like, "This must be an emotional issue. There must be," and I'm like, "But I'm I'm not finding it. I'm not feeling it." And then I realized, like, "Oh, it's just because like I need to manage my schedule. That's why I'm anxious." (laughs) Um, But knowing that taught me to know what to ask for and to present it in a way, like, like, you know, I should never have to explain away every single thought in my head but sometimes it's helpful to a partner to be like hey can you let me know what time you need to be home or what time you're going to be home or whatever and hey it's not because I really (laughs) I was going to say it's not because I care You know what I mean? It's not because I'm having some kind of, you know, feelings that I'm not saying about like your relationship with the other partner, you know, there's not anything else under the radar going on. And I can just say it's purely because like I want to be able to manage my schedule or if I know what to expect, I can sleep better or it really has nothing to do with like controlling what you're doing with another partner and me just identifying that about myself so I can be more transparent with myself and with my partner like a world of difference.
0: Yeah, and so that's one reason it's oftentimes important for the somebody with anxiety not to have a partner that is the kind of partner that's like, more, let's go to another part, you know, that's like, you know, going so fast and overwhelming them because then you can have an anxious person that their brain is just fuzzing over and they can't locate what is actually making them anxious because you're right it's like when you be when you're able to pinpoint what makes you anxious then you can problem solve and a lot of times then you can really reduce the anxiety especially if your anxiety is free man- you know like you're doing your part you're going to a therapist or you know you're getting medication that you need or whatever it is that you need to manage your anxiety then if you have a partner that is compassionate and isn't pushing you too fast, then you're more likely to recognize what you need. And then everybody involved, all partners involved can do better. So managing that overwhelm is, is so important. And then also, you know, for some people, it may be that they need a simpler form of non-monogamy. I think this is true for a lot of folks that struggle with some kind of mental health issues, like to really be healthy, they might need a more gentle form of non-monogamy rather than going to a play party, you know, every three days or something like that, you know, but this gets difficult. Obviously, you know, I have a tendency to sometimes talk in language of like, almost like there's two partners when actually there's more than those just for simplicity. But everything that I'm saying could apply in a grander sense. And obviously what I'm saying does get difficult when you start to think about other partners involved and you can see how, when, if one partner has anxiety, and they're needing all this clarity and everything, all these other partners may feel frustrated, you know, especially if they don't have the same struggle. They might just be like, can't we just go with the flow? Do we really need this much structure? And especially as somebody, you know, because some people with a lot of anxiety, sometimes they're incessantly checking. Some of the things that become difficult with folks with anxiety within non-monogamy beyond the aspect of seeming overly controlling or actually things that kind of can feel controlling are just incessant checking like circling back to things that other partners feel have been discussed before and other things that an anxious person may not notice are things like their body language you know or their tone when they get super anxious they may have this tone or they may have exaggerated body language that makes their partner feel like they're walking on eggshells
1: or even like that, that kind of wound up. I know I get that way. I don't realize like I'm like tuned up and wound up where I, I don't feel like I'm like, (laughs) but I'm coming off that way to other people. And it just like throws everybody's
0: mood. So yeah. And it's one of those unconscious things that a lot of times when that's going on in my private practice and I'm watching two people, Neither one of them knows why they are all of a sudden fighting. And I have to say to them, you know, the, the words, the transcription of the, your words is not that troubling, but your body language and your tone right now is disregulating both of you it's like a really key thing that a lot of people don't realize and, and softening your tone, softening your body language can really have a huge impact on how well things go. And the other thing, you know, anxious folks, you know, have a tendency to some people, not everybody. Sometimes, you know, they keep pumping the brakes while concurrently not doing it, their own self-work certain anxious folks, you know, and why wouldn't they want to do self-work? Like if they're anxious about non-monogamy, then avoiding the self-work, you know, they may be being avoidant of proceeding in non-monogamy. And as long as they keep on avoiding doing the therapy or whatever, they can use that as an excuse. They can say, well, I'm not quite ready to be non-monogamous because I haven't had a chance to go to therapy because, you know, it's some excuse. My money's low or what have you. And I've seen other partners be patient for six months or whatever. And after a while, they're just like, you're just delaying things without doing the work and now we're six months later and you still haven't even gone to a therapist, you know, that kind of thing. So I think, you know, as far as like an objective goes, there's, you know, kind of an objective to create balance, to make sure that the person with the anxiety is doing their part, you know, getting the help that they need. Meanwhile, the partners are creating as much structure for the, the anxious person as, as possible without it starting to make them feel like they're losing themselves or that they're
1: being controlled? Okay, so I have a question when it comes to non-monogamy specifically, if you are the non-anxious partner, is it a thing, okay, where maybe, let's say, you know the example like the anxious partner is anxious about something that has nothing to do. With the other partnership, the the metamorph, no, like nothing. It could be like me, like I'm anxious about scheduling and it's got nothing to do with me being jealous or trying to sabotage or, you know, however, it's all about, uh, you know, how we perceive. So let's say that non-anxious partner, could they be perceiving or overlaying their assumptions of like, <gasps> You must be acting like this because you don't really want me to go out on that date, do you? I knew it. Where maybe on their part, that's kind of a, I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy would be the right word, but like they're actually imprinting their fears about like, I know my partner's going to get jealous and is going to shut me down. You see what I'm saying? Is that a thing? Like, does that happen?
0: Well, it goes back, and I'm, I'm sure we've talked about this before, you know, the catastrophizing. You know, we've talked about catastrophizing and that's like one of the biggest things that I I see in non-monogamous relationships when they see one person get anxious about whatever it is, the scheduling, whether they checked in enough at the play party, you know, whatever it is, the partner that's not anxious just assumes that the person that's anxious can't do this. And sometimes we'll just, you know, instead of listening to the anxious person and going, oh, okay, you just need to, know when I'll be home, or you just need to understand the schedule better, they flip out and go, see, you can't even do this. You know, this is clear evidence that, that we shouldn't even be non-monogamous or that you're just doing this to make me happy or something like that. And that may not be true. It may be that the anxious person just really needs more structure and that with that structure, they can really manage their anxiety so much better. So I think the person without the anxiety, they just have to be a person that has some patience and can be kind and really listen.
1: The listening and not like interpreting your own, you know, they say like we all have our own story. And if you don't know all the details, you just kind of make up your own story as to why. And we can be so off base with that stuff. And then just run with it and make things so much worse.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of clients that do that, it's Some, not everybody does that as much as other people do, you know, making up a story in their head. But some of my clients that do that all the time, I will say, I want when you're not with me or during sessions or when you're at home, when you guys are having a hard conversation or any time that you catch yourself being upset at what your partner's saying instead of being off to the races just simply say to them right now the story that i'm telling myself is that you're saying x y and z and that gives the other partner a chance to say yes that is what i'm saying or no how did you come up with that one the <laughs> what <laughs>
1: nicely. My tone. I got to watch my tone. Okay.
0: And that happens all the freaking time. Oh my God. I mean, that's one of the things that distinguishes humans from all the other animals is that we, we make up stories. So, you know, moving on to depression, you know, again, I think most of us have a idea of what depression is. People that struggle with depression oftentimes have a depressed mood almost every day, like the people that are actually diagnosable. They may have diminished interest in things that used to give them pleasure. That's called anhedonia. If you think about the root of that, hedonia, he- hedonism. So you put an an at the beginning. So it's basically the opposite of pleasure, right? It's Anhedonia is like anti-pleasure, right? If you think of it that way, they may have sig- significant weight loss or weight gain. They may experience slowed down thought. They may have fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, you know, and some people actually may become suicidal, right? When it gets extreme. I think one thing that you'll notice with folks with depression is you've got the folks that go low and isolate and withdraw, and then you've got people that get depressed and they get angry, you know, and and I think it's more prevalent with men that their depression can show up as anger. And I think that's important to know. Not a lot of folks say that. So it's not always that quiet sadness, I can't get out of bed thing. Sometimes it's lashing out. So when you think about non-monogamy in the depressed person, some of the positives is that they have access to a larger safety net of resources, of love and support and community. And that can be a key way to manage their depression. Number two with non-monogamy is obviously it it reduces isolation. You don't just have one partner, you have more than one partner and that can help reduce your isolation because if there's anything that is a slippery slope for folks with depression is getting too isolated. Like having some quiet time is one thing, but when you just start isolating where you don't talk to anybody, that's where it can really slide down into worse things like suicidality and that sort of thing. And third, you know, a lot of times people that with the struggle with depression, they have a sense of, you know, feeling guilty. They feel guilty for leaning on their partner too much. They have a feeling of being a burden. And when you have one more than one partner, then you can kind of spread your needs out across different partners and friends. And so that that can help pull someone out of their depression as well, because they, they don't feel as much of a burden. You know, some of the difficulties for the depressed person is, you know, with more lovers comes more potential breakups. And so you can end up having more grief and that can exacerbate the depression. Or, you know, sometimes non-monogamy can lead to overwhelm that can exacerbate the depression. So those are a few things that are difficult for the depressed person.
1: You know, one thing I'm thinking of is like, I always make up like fictitious scenarios in my head. So in my head, there is, you know, a polycule, you know, kitchen table polyamory where all the metamors know each other and, you know, they talk to each other, whatever. And let's say one partner is the depressed person and they're having a depressive episode. And, you know, let's say, you know, one of the partners, talks to the other partner it's like hey you know Taylor has been really depressed let's you know try to blah 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 so then I've seen this happen then like all the metamors get together and they're like we're gonna buy them flowers and we're gonna take them on a surprise we're gonna cheer them up and we're and it's like it's it can be annoying enough as the depressed person when one person is like come on just Jerry, so, come on, just get out of the house. Come on. What can I do? I Imagine having like three or four of them all in cahoots, like bringing you chocolates and trying to like, hey, let's get you in the shower. And the, You know, so that seems like it can be a challenge. Is that true? Like, how do you handle as the partner when to just be like, hey, I'm going to step back and let you just like be in your funk because that's where you need to be. And I need to now be more active and to help you. And then, you know, get the whole gang on board. That can be great when it's needed, but disastrous when it's not. So how do we manage that?
0: I think what I usually see more, I'll just say, is that that community a lot of times is a benefit. You know, like when one person's depressed and pulls away and the two other lovers, especially if they're friends, can talk to each other and say, you know, how, how can we help them out? You know, and, and have that sidebar conversation. And they usually know this person that struggles with depression so well and can either give them space or help them out, provide things for them. You know, usually what I've seen is that it's a benefit, but in a lot of times in the little polycules or the little formations where one person has depression, There's other people that struggle with other things, like maybe another person has anxiety or another person has PTSD and they're all aware of each other's issues and they try and help each other out. I think at the end of the day, you know, people that get too intense, people that mean well, but they are overbearing. At the end of the day, that depressed person, when they're not as depressed, needs to come back around and have a voice, you know, and and say to them, I know you mean well but you're actually making me more
1: depressed. And again, that goes back to the self-awareness to knowing, you know, how you are and what you need and what you don't need when you are depressed or, you know, with our other example, anxious, whatever it is. And with that, you know, the therapy helps that. But, you know, I've been with people who have had depression and having that conversation outside of the depressive episode is so insightful because it can be like, hey, When I'm doing X, Y, and Z, or I'm saying X, Y, and Z, that's when I actually really do need you to just let me be. You prodding and prodding, it's just going to make me feel worse. However, you know, then they'll be like, when I say blah, 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 and I tell you blah, 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 that's really not what's happening. I need you to push a little. Like, that's when I need. And so to have those, like, debriefs when you're on more solid ground, they are everything,
0: and again, I'm always trying to help people look through multiple lens. So right now we're talking about like potentially a depressed partner that maybe have partners that are anxious about witnessing their depression. So they're getting hypervigilant. They're helping too much, all of that. Like, what does that start to look like? That starts to look like, you know, if we look through a different lens, attachment styles, right? Where you have an avoidant attachment style. And then you have the anxious, ambivalent attachment style dating each other. So we can look through multiple lenses. But if you think about Sue Johnson's book, Hold Me Tight, she talks about the pattern of one partner, or in this case, partners, who starts to get bigger. Like, maybe I can make you chicken soup, or maybe I can do this or that, or, you know, maybe if I get loud, you know whatever it is to try and get the attention and then the other person who's withdrawing for whatever reason either because they're depressed or because they're a, an avoidant personality avoidant attachment style or both if that pattern keeps happening then those two people or more than two people <laughs> might be cascading towards breaking up and so the the key thing is obviously when someone's depressed they may not be able to come forward but they A lot of times depression is cyclical, right? A lot of people are not always depressed. They have a depressive cycle and then it passes and they come out of it. And when they come out of it, they're better able to speak on these things.
1: Another thing that I have seen, and this is for the, you know, one of the non-depressed partners, let's say there's a depressed partner and during depressive episodes or maybe when the just depressive episodes are triggered by maybe a certain thing that they have in common with one partner that depressive person may really gravitate towards one partner because for some reason that person like comforts them in the right way and the way they need it for, you know, whatever reason and kind of pushes the other partners away. And it's like, yes, of course, that's for the benefit of the depressed part. They're getting what they need. You know, they're relating to a person that makes them feel good for whatever reason. But then you got the other partners in the wings, like, Hey, and that's like, if you look at it from a logical point of view. It's like, well, that's a shitty reason to get jealous. But when you're in it, it happens. So like, do you see that happen? And if so, what can those partners who feel like they're being pushed out or shunned that want to be supportive, but are obviously not the chosen one, or that's how they feel, how can they make themselves feel better or what can they do in that situation and do you see is this common or am i just making up some obscure thing in my head i
0: think what i see happening the most is that you know like say that there's one person that likes to be kind of like the white knight and maybe they have two partners and one partner is struggling more and so they pay more attention to that partner and the other partner that's actually doing well gets ignored you know That happens too, where it's like, I'm doing all the things and I'm being completely ignored. <laughs> but I'm sure it can happen in the scenario that you just described as well. You know, I think at the, at the end of the day, this takes conscious awareness and it takes kind of putting your ego in your back pocket and realizing that all your partners need attention and all your partners need connection. And so, I mean, it does take being able to see the forest for the trees because if if you're too mired in in your depression or if you're too mired in your ego or something like that then yeah you can end up ignoring certain partners for certain reasons so I, i think when you're the partner when your partner is the depressed one and you're the one witnessing that it is important to make sure that your needs are met too because a lot of times if you're dating someone who's depressed, and every day you say, okay, who's hurting more, and it's always them, then you can run into a position where you're never the one holding the emotional talking stick. You're never the one getting your needs met. And that's not healthy either. That can quickly become a codependent relationship. So it's important that you maintain having a voice as as well and that you maintain your self-care because otherwise you're going to burn
1: out. Now I've had partners too that, you know, when they experienced the depression, they also had times where they experienced like the mania partners that were bipolar. So, and for some folks that's, you know, comes on the flip side. So how do we handle a partner who has manic states and what are those manic states? So
0: some people are just depressed and then you've got folks that are bipolar. And, you know, if you're bipolar, then you have both poles, right? You have the mania and you also have the depression. And again, sometimes mania isn't full-tilt diagnosable. It might be an isolated episode or, or something of that nature. You know, and, and just to, to just define it a little bit, it's um, a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated expansive and irrit- or irritable mood and abnormally and persistent goal-directed behavior or energy. Some of the criteria for... Mania are inflated self-esteem, grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, more talkative. Like I always think of Robin Williams, like Robin Williams at his best made his mania work for him, but he is kind of like this quintessential example of someone who is in a manic state a lot of the time, (laughs) you know, a flight of ideas, uh, distractibility these are all examples. Sometimes somebody, when they're in a mania, they will do things like go on excessive buying sprees or, you know, have a whole bunch of sexual experiences that they regret later or, you know, foolish business investments, you know, and you can think about how this might impact non-monogamy, you know, the, the person in the mania may be super impulsive and you know break relationship agreements they may have poor judgment when they're in this state they may make their partners feel super emotionally overwhelmed and the partners may feel blindsided and the manic partner may completely overlook their partner's needs you know and and one other thing i'll say is a lot of times the person that is manic they love how it feels a lot of times Because it just, you feel like you're on the top of the world and you can do anything. And so, you know, a lot of times for the partner that is experiencing all of this, you know, they, if they try and tell their partner, look, you need help or this is hurting me, a lot of times the manic partner does not want to hear that
1: shit. And I think about that state when it coincides with NRE, new relationship energy, or a new partner, sometimes that can get really say challenging what advice do you have for that for both the person who is in that state which again impulsivity is a thing so it might be hard to be like no i need, kate said i need to reel it in and also for the partner like what would you advise if if a new relationship and you know is a fast and furious thing is coinciding with that manic state Summer is here, and so are our friends at Manscaped to help make sure that you're ready for the sun, fun, and then some. In other words, you will be smelling divine and be immaculately groomed, too. Oh, and at Manscaped.com, you can also get 20% off and free shipping with the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, Now Manscaped is dedicated to helping masculine folk level up their body grooming game with their performance package 4.0. The Perfect Package 4.0 comes with the Essential Lawn Mower 4.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your grooming routine. Whether you're trimming your chest or the treasure chest down below, this is the best trimmer on the market with a ceramic blade designed to cut hair on loose skin and reduce grooming accidents thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin safe technology. The Performance Package 2.0 also comes with the Weed Whacker 2.0 for those pesky nose hairs, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Ball Toner, and Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant and Moisturizer, because, you know, chafing is real, especially if you're in those little shorts all day. You also get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the Patented High Performance Reduced Chafing Manscaped boxers. And again, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code sunny at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code sunny at M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. How's your summer heating up? Not enough? Well, lucky for you, Dipsy's Sexy Audio Stories can help you turn up that heat even more. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories that bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. Radically inclusive, Dipsy has stories for straight and queer listeners, and over half are voice acted by people of color. You have never heard celebrities like this before. Listen to stories voiced by Sharonis J. Jackson, ER Fightmaster, and Luke Cook. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite hot stories again and again, you will always find something new to explore. Dipsy also has soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories that you can read, too. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of American Sex Podcast, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to com slash sunny. That's S-U-N-N-Y. Yeah, 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash sunny. That's dipsystories.com slash sunny. A podcaster goes to Tokyo to uncover stories of sex, relationships, and queerness and winds up getting a happy ending massage. That's the kind of
0: Bourdain-style experiential storytelling you can expect from Private Parts
1: Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. Hi, I'm Courtney Kosak, and for the show we've traveled to Helsinki, Finland, Mexico City, Mexico, Tokyo, Japan, and beyond to explore different modes of intimacy and increase our cultural understanding. Tune in for hilarious sex-positive conversations destigmatizing everything from abortion to Ashley Madison, polyamory to PMDD, sex work to Shibari, and more. Follow Private Parts Unknown on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. advice do you have for that for both the person who is in that state, which again, impulsivity is a thing. So it might be hard to be like, no, I need, Kate said I need to reel it in. And also for the partner, like what would you advise if, if a new relationship and, you know, is a fast and furious thing is coinciding with that manic state?
0: And again, some of my advice is similar in a lot of these counts and, and just, oh, by the way, you know, I've been non-monogamous long enough that I've at some point dated almost all of these types, you know, I've dated someone that's, you know, sometimes goes into a mania and it's almost impossible to talk to them when they're in the manic state. You know, they're just like too high, like they're just on a different planet. But again, as with a lot of these things, once they come out of the mania and they're at their best self, you can talk to them then, you know, and of course, if somebody's like, so manic that they need to be hospitalized and you need to do something about it. But we're we're not talking about those kinds of extremes in this podcast episode. We're not gonna talk about we haven't talked about depression that gets so bad that the person's suicidal. We're not talking about those kinds of extremes because that's just beyond the constraints of what we can do today because we're covering so much territory. But we're just talking about someone who has a manic episode that is causing them to have poor judgment, et cetera, within non-monogamy. You know, like ideally you want to wait until they come out of that and sit them down and just be like, look, this is how this is impacting me. You don't realize I know you're having fun, but this is completely overwhelming to me and we need to talk and we need to, you know, and you might need to go to a therapist and get some help, you know. That can be a hard conversation because a lot of times when you're talking to somebody with depression, you may have some struggles. They may think a lot of times people that are depressed, they're, they're like, I should be able to pull out of this on my own. And they have guilt that they might need assistance from a therapist or a psychiatrist. But sometimes it's easier than with them than somebody that's manic that is enjoying
1: this high. You know, I want to double back to what you said at the beginning of the episode. Like, yes you know sometimes these we're talking about these things in the context of being diagnosable but sometimes we're talking about thing these things in the context of being like you know a trait or a thing that kind of happens cuz we all go through our periods of stuff and with the the mania in particular i have seen that also you know maybe to lighter degrees but people who have ADHD and get into like a a impulsive, like hyper focusy period. You know, I've seen a lot of the similar stuff or like, even with me as well, I've really started picking up on now that I've been like tracking my body and tracking, like really getting to know myself, somebody who has like chronic fatigue issues and invisible illness. And I feel like shit most of the time I will go through a period where I'll have like a period of three or four days where it's like all of my, I don't know, you know, cellular stars have aligned and my joints don't hurt and I feel good and I don't feel exhausted. And I'm, it's like, woo, I'm on cocaine for like three days. And it's not that I'm bipolar. It's that I finally feel good and I get a little off the chain. I'm just saying.
0: You're not the only person, like a lot of folks that that actually, and I'm glad that you mentioned ADHD because yeah, ADHD folks within non-monogamy, it's very similar where they can be super compulsive. And I think a lot of times folks with ADHD, because their brains are just springing all over the place, they may have a partner that has given them a long history of things that have hurt them in the past. And they're not just saying that to like tell them a story. They're they're like telling them so that the person with ADHD won't, won't hurt them in the same way. But because the ADHD brain can't really like sometimes hold that kind of tapestry, because they're just like all over the place. When they get compulsive, they sometimes can do the exact same thing that the person has been saying, please don't hurt me in this way, you know, and they have a hard time holding that kind of information sometimes. And then they can do things that are compulsive that can hurt the partner. Even if the partner has kind of explained in advance, this will hurt me. You know, they're just off to the races and going so fast. That They don't mean to hurt their partner, but they're just not, they just are having a hard time holding everything in their head.
1: And it's like, I have done things where it's like to someone on the outside or someone, someone creating their own story. You know, it could look like I totally was like careless or thoughtless about something that I should have known on purpose, and really, in my head, it was like, oh, that thing didn't even exist anymore. Like, that thing you told me not to do was the castle in the goldfish bowl, and I'm not looking at it, and I'm the goldfish, so it doesn't exist to me. I completely forgot about it. Like, it wasn't on purpose. It's just, you know, it's like object permanence, but with things that you told me or, or facts that I should know that should inform my behavior, just kind of like fall out of my pocket and disappear. And, oh, I'm excited and thinking about 20,000 things. And yeah, it can be very difficult.
0: But what I've seen with folks that have mania, like once they like if they are bipolar, like once you get them on meds and and they get proper help, then all of a sudden they have better judgment within non-monogamy. They end up coming off as having way more empathy and way more caring because all of a sudden they, again, can focus outward more. Like with, with a lot of these things, it's like once you get the proper help, then you're not so focused on your own pain and your own struggle or whatever's going on within you. And you can be so much more compassionate and caring and kind to your partners. I think also... You know, if you have partners that had been burnt out, now your your partners can also be more helpful because they're less burnt out <laughs> once you get proper care. You know, if you have kind partners, that's, you know, important. Like if you struggle with mental health issues, it's so crucial that you have kind partners, not someone who is making you feel bad about your struggle, not beating you down further, not shaming you, not telling you you should just get over
1: it easier said than done. If I could just get over it, I would have done that a long time ago. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> yeah. And that can be hard. Cause I mean, we live in this country that has so much mental health issues and such little understanding about mental health issues. So you do end up with part, a lot of people do end up with partners that are like, just get over it. You just need like, just get out of bed. Just why can't you buck up?
1: And now let's talk about narcissism and BPD. In my mind, I kind of couple those together, but I'm not the mental health professional. Like to me, they're sort of like cousins of each other in some ways, or they kind of can go together sometimes like salt and pepper shakers. But you know, and as we talked about in the episode where we talked about overgivers and whatnot, even in the beginning of this episode, again, these things don't have to be diagnosable, but sometimes we can exhibit these traits. And in our gender roles, as we talked about in that other episode, the society's gender expectations and gender roles kind of pepper in some of these qualities from both like BPD, narcissism in traditional gender roles as well. So I think these two kind of can touch all of us in little ways.
0: And obviously there's more personality disorders than just narcissism and borderline personality disorder. I mean, for me, I mean, yes, one person could have both. They could be narcissistic and they could have heavy borderline symptoms or be diagnosable but they actually are very different and when you think about narcissism and the trait like the symptoms that can go with narcissism not all of them are as detrimental as others like you could have somebody that just has kind of a grandiose sense of self and that's way less damaging than another trait of narcissism which is having little to no empathy so you can have one narcissist with a certain cluster of symptoms and another you know like say you know have a fixation on ultimate success and they're grandiose and they are egotistical all of that it may be a pain in the ass it's not going to impact you the same way as if you're dealing with a narcissism that has a fixation on controlling you has a sense of entitlement has interpersonally oppressive behavior and has no freaking empathy. That cluster can feel like it's leaning towards sociopathy.
1: Yeah. Like one is like, oh, you're just a confident person. Maybe it's, you know, a little annoying. And the other one's like, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like
0: you, you can see certain celebrities that are kind of full of themselves where you can see that they're narcissistic in their grandiosity. But they're not that person that's breaking other people down. So there's different types of narcissism. And let's face it, there's a lot of people with heavy narcissism that may not be diagnosable that are still doing a lot of harm, right? So one of the things about narcissism is that it's usually egocentric, meaning they don't think anything is wrong with them. There's not all these narcissists going to therapists going, please cure me of my narcissism. Usually if a narcissist shows up in therapy, they might be showing up with their partner and thinking that they can hoodwink the therapist into helping to puppeteer their partner or something like that.
1: Or like the thought of, again, you're writing your own story. It's like, well, my partner thinks it's my problem. But if we go to therapy, the therapist will realize it's actually them and I'm doing everything right.
0: (laughs) I've had some narcissists come into my practice that are wanting to be non-monogamous and they've, a lot of times they will choose someone that they can puppeteer in some way. I've had them bring in, you know, someone who is just kind of like a little lamb for the slaughter. And literally, there's been times where I'm like, I have 50 minutes to like express certain things to this other person to give them some agency, because I know this narcissist, once the narcissist figures out that they're not going to be able to puppeteer me, they're not going to be coming back to a second session, you know? So that's one thing that Keep in mind is you know so their behavior can be you know it's egocentric. A lot of times, narcissists within non monogamy are overtakers, and again, a lot of times they're dating overgivers, and that that overgiver a lot of times, as I've said in previous episodes, a lot of times the overgiver almost has a form that's almost similar to body dysmorphia. You know, just like somebody who has anorexia, no matter what the reality is. They think that they're a different size, right? The emotional overgiver, no matter how much they're giving, a lot of times they perceive themselves as selfish. And the narcissist, the person with narcissism will be first to agree with them in an effort to get more. And so the thing is within non-monogamy, a lot of times people with heavy narcissism, they don't really know how to love or receive love. So they need something to replace that. And that's their narcissistic fuel. And a best example of that is watching a Trump rally when he's watching all his supporters just, you know, bow down to him. He's just, it's like a heroin addict shooting up. He's just, hes getting that narcissistic fuel. So within non-monogamy, the narcissistic fuel source is the potential for a lot of beautiful lovers and attention and adoration. Right. And so if the narcissist chooses a good over that that is willing to, like, lay down any kind of self care and just allow the narcissist to, you know, keep on taking, 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 then they can really have this heavy narcissistic fuel source within non monogamous
1: communities. So, let's say I am an overgiver and I am with an overtaker or somebody who has, you know, narcissistic personality traits. Let's not even say they're like diagnosed, you know, uh, narcissistic personalities or just, you know, someone who's dipping their toes in the waters even. And they're convincing me that I am, you know, yeah, I am being selfish and yeah. And I am just, I am the lamb slaughtering, you know, hey, slaughter me, how do I fix that? (laughs) What do I do? Well,
0: just keep in mind that, you know, if you've been in that relationship for a while, then you've probably been experiencing a lot of gaslighting. You've probably, wherever you were at the beginning, you're probably worn down significantly. You might be that kind of person that still loves the narcissist, you know, the person with narcissism in a lot of ways. And you probably think you can heal them with your love. And so part of it is realizing that, you know, although love heals so much, that it's not your job to sacrifice yourself in this way. And one of the main things that you need to do is learn how to assert yourself. And the thing with the overgiver is overgiver within non-monogamy oftentimes thinks that if they assert themselves to this narcissist that is overtaking in the relationship and not listening to their self-care needs and has no empathy for them, they usually believe that this will inherently say something negative about their character the overgiver will think that oh well if i assert myself to this you know person with heavy narcissistic traits that that i'm a nag that i'm bad at polyamory that i'm a controlling jerk that i'm a selfish failure and you got to get to a point where you don't think that you actually caring for yourself makes you a bad person and if you get to that point where you start asserting yourself and then the person with heavy narcissism starts throwing tantrums or breaks up with you you have to realize that if they do break up with you because you started loving yourself well and setting boundaries that really you're the one you're kind of the one who left you weren't dumped you're the one who left the moment that you started loving yourself well and one thing that I'll just say as an extra food for thought i think some folks that are overgivers they think well i love myself i like who i am But you have to realize that half of self-love is setting boundaries. And if you're not setting boundaries for yourself to protect yourself, you can't say that you're loving yourself well.
1: That's a hard lesson to learn. That is a hard lesson to learn. And I'm thinking about this in the context, again, of multiple partners. Let's say I have a partner and, you know, we have a pretty balanced relationship. Things are pretty good, right? And they start dating another person. Who is narcissistic? And I can see, like, ooh, this is not seem healthy, this new relationship you're in with this new person. And again, it's not that I'm jealous. It's not that I'm trying to sabotage. It's because, like, I love you and I could see this train is, you know, going down the wrong track here. What can I do if I have a partner that maybe isn't ready to hear that, isn't ready to? get their boundaries on and assert themselves. But I'm doing that delicate dance of like, I want to help you and give you the empowerment to do, you know, set your own boundaries. But I also don't want to seem like I'm butting myself into your relationship or telling you like to break up with this person. How do you handle that? Well, for
0: one thing, if you're dating this person that is dating someone That is that form of narcissism that I mentioned at the beginning. That's harmful. Like they don't have any empathy and they're trying to control you and they're trying to wear you down. Like all of that. Eventually you're not just going to be witnessing it. You're going to be experiencing the secondhand smoke. It will start to impact you too. Their relationship will not operate just in a bubble. It will start impacting you. And this is my opinion that I know that some people wouldn't agree with. I feel like within non-monogamy, because we do impact other people, I think we do have a responsibility to choose partners that are kind because they will impact our other partners. Unkind partners will impact our other partners. So I would say that, you know, I think the the per- person witnessing this, I think there's ways to express things without being controlling and just saying, I'm witnessing X, Y, and Z and it's impacting our relationship because you are, I'm watching you become miserable. I'm watching you all of a sudden be so focused on this person because you're trying to manage them. You have less time for me when you are with me, your energy, you're like depleted. Like this is impacting us because that, that is where it'll eventually go. If you have this other person that is just sucking the life out of your partner.
1: That's a tricky situation. And I think that's like a good time to like call Kate and be like, hey, Kate, will you be our non-monogamous therapist and talk to us about this situation? And
0: sometimes your partner won't want to pull away. You know, they'll be in that vortex. They'll be pulled in, you know, and and then you have to decide you have to do your own self-care and decide what's best for you.
1: And then, you know, the influence of the other partner, maybe making you into the bad guy. There's that gaslighting, manipulating it. Like, I could just see this turning into like a nightmare.
0: At the end of the day, you, you have to love yourself. And you do have to find that balance between advocating for yourself, advocating for your partner. But, you know, trying not to be controlling and realizing that we don't own another person. So it is this difficult balancing act, but I think it starts with being honest and and just saying something to the effect of, look, I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to tell you who to date, but this is what I'm seeing. And this is how it's impacting me. And this is how I see it impacting us. And this is where I see this going. If it continues like that kind of blunt conversation, I think is important because Wherever it's at right now, if you're really dating someone who's narcissistic, it will, you know, with heavy narcissistic symptoms, as I said, the ones that are more negative, like the lack of empathy, it will be accumulative trauma and it will build upon itself. And so it's not something to just ignore. So that, that's, that's what I'd say about that is like, you got to be assertive and you got to set limits. So if we move on to the last one that we're going to cover, which is borderline personality disorder, you know, uh, BPD is shown to be a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image and emotion. It can be marked with impulsivity. This is what I, I would say, like when you look at the symptoms of it, if you were to look in the DSM-5, they, they'll explain it in a certain way, but. The way I like to think about it is a lot of times somebody with borderline personality disorder has had this huge backstory of a lot of injuries. And so a lot of times someone with borderline personality disorder, what they want most and what they fear most is the same thing, and that's love. And the reason that's the case is because every time someone was supposed to love them, whether it was a a parent or Someone in their backstory, what came after the love was given was some kind of horrific pain a lot of times. And they have this whole backstory of that of love being coupled with abuse or love being coupled with abandonment. And so when they get into relationships, and they a lot of times they will push for that love hard, and they'll idealize you and they'll put you on this pedestal. and it feels amazing. But just when they feel that apex of what they've wanted so much, that's when they become terrified.
1: Like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, oh.
0: Yeah. And they'll lash out. They'll sabotage. You know, all of a sudden it gets really painful and dark. And you'll be knocked off that pedestal. And it's very cyclical in that way of the idealizing and then the vilifying, the idealizing and the vilifying. And you can imagine if you're experiencing that, how exhausting it is, but people will stay like with a borderline a lot of times because they're chasing the pedestal phase a lot of times, you know, and they're thinking, if I heal this person with my love, I'll get to stay on the pedestal phase. Right. But that's not really how it works. Now, again, like at the very head of this whole episode, I talked about different ways, whether you have more of the self-entitled person with mental illness versus the person that's more of the over-giver type with, border, with, with a mental illness. I've seen folks with borderline personality disorder where it can show up very different. Like, you know, there's the type that I was kind of describing that is like lashing out and all of that. I've also seen the opposite where it's the borderline person that knows that they have mental health issues. And so they will overgive, but then they'll get really resentful and angry. They overgive trying to, trying to make up for the fact that they know they have mental health issues, but then the resentment that comes from the overgiving adds fuel to the push-pull dynamic, if that makes sense. That version is actually much easier to heal because they have some awareness that they're borderline. They are trying to do good. They're trying to break patterns. They're just having a hard time. And folks that are more of that type, I've taken them in therapy from having that kind of dynamic in their life and in non-monogamy and taking them to a point where they're not diagnosable anymore, you know, because they, they do have that awareness. They don't want to hurt people. They want to have a good life, but they just have a lot of injuries. And so you can do EMDR with them. You can talk to them about patterns. I can talk to them about how to regulate their body, like all of these things. And over time you can get to a point Where, at least this has been my experience, I've I've worked with a lot of folks with borderline symptoms where I've gotten them to a point where it's not diagnosable anymore. Because a lot of it is trauma-based. You know, there's therapists, there's people that think you can be born with borderline personality disorder. I have not run into that. Like, everybody, both on the clock and off the clock that I've ever met with borderline personality disorder has this huge trauma history, and that's how their trauma manifests is this kind of push-pull dynamic and fear of abandonment.
1: So, I mean, on the surface, it sounds like that seems like it's not a good combination with multiple relationships, but there's also got to be some, some upsides. So what are the, like, the pros and cons of non-monogamy for people who have borderline?
0: Well, you know, number one, if you have multiple partners, then that creates a safety net for the person with borderline who fears abandonment. And so that safety net, like if they have trouble with one partner, then they have another partner that they can go to. So all of a sudden, there isn't a complete abandonment that might happen within monogamy. And also for someone who's dating somebody with heavy borderline personality disorder symptoms, that person is not as likely to get worn down because for the same reason, the person with borderline symptoms has other people to go to. And so it's easier for them because they know that their partner is going to be with someone else part of the time. At its best, if if all the partners are more, have emotional intelligence and are pretty good at non-monogamy, this at its best can soften borderline symptoms, which most Therapists that look through a monogamous lens would think this was crazy pants. They would think, okay, well, if somebody has BPD, they need to have a very stable monogamous relationship, which I can totally understand that lens. I mean, it makes perfect sense. But what I'm saying also makes sense for folks with lighter borderline symptoms. The more severe the borderline symptoms, the more non-monogamy is just going to be too stressful for them. Some of the negatives of non-monogamy for somebody with BPD, if they feel that their partner is choosing another partner over them, if their partner is just going off to the races with NRE, it can really trigger someone with BPD. They can really trigger their abandonment
1: fears. And I'm thinking like, you know, we talk about these things kind of like, stand alone because that's an easy way to address it but then you know when you get complex it's like oh no what if I have BPD and my partner has a bipolar and they're in a manic episode and they have NRE and they're with a new partner and they're like we, and then I feel abandoned you know? <laughs> It's like your trauma triggers my trauma. Right,
0: right. Which, you know, is that double trigger thing that I've talked about before. Yeah, yeah. It can really blow up if the wrong people are dating each other.
1: But just knowing, just having that knowledge and being able to be like, oh, I think this is what's happening. I think that's a good part of it. Just knowing And
0: that's what a lot of this episode is. It's not like going into these details of all these vignettes of like all the different ways that this can show up and how to fix it. It's just like trying to create at least some awareness about these different things and how they can show up. And that's the starting place. Obviously, we could do a deep dive with any one of these and, and give all kinds of examples and different ways it could show up and all of that. But at least we're creating some kind of awareness with this episode. Another negative, when someone with BPD becomes triggered by other lovers or you know, there's flirting or a perceived threat to the relationship, it can leave their partner walking on eggshells. And this fear of upsetting the partner with BPD often leads to allowing them to have more lovers, more freedom, more leeway in an effort to appease them. This is a common thread through this whole episode, right? That a lot of times if you're a partner dating somebody with some mental health issue, that you could end up being codependent with them. And I have seen this happen where somebody who's non-monogamous and has BPD symptoms, that their partners are all catering to them, you know, and walking on eggshells. So, and that's, that's not right. That's not healthy for anybody, you know? So I I think the objective is probably to have a more, you know, to choose partners that are okay with having a more simple, less changeable, more predictable, probably a more hierarchical form of non-monogamy rather than something that is more loose and changeable.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad you bring that up because I know, you know, there's a lot of talk of like hierarchical polyamory is always bad. And it's like, yes, it can be really toxic and people can use it for really horrible reasons and, and to, you know, treat people like crap, but some, you know, every situation's different. Every need is different. And as long as it's consensual and in good faith, that sort of thing, sometimes, you know, people choose different paths for very valid reasons and they're, relationship styles and structures
0: right and there's certain styles and structures that a person may not be ready for and it's not just because they're jealous maybe they have a full tilt ptsd disorder maybe they struggle with very real depression and sometimes they're suicidal you know it's some of the things that people are contending with are no joke it's not just pet you know like like the simple jealousy sometimes it runs really deep and sometimes we're just not ready for, like, say, a full-tilt uh, relationship anarchy model or something like that. Maybe that's just way too much to contend with when we're also struggling with very real mental health issues.
1: It's all about that nuance. it You know, it really is. And trying to do things as ethically as possible and trying to think about others outside of yourself to see if like, oh, am I inadvertently hurting somebody with my actions or with my hierarchy or with my whatever? As long as we're all aware and we're consensual and we're doing our best to be good people and good people to others, that's really where it's at.
0: And you can see how if you're dating someone with mental health issues how very easily it could become codependent very easily you could feel controlled so it is this dance between caring for the the person but also maintaining your se- sense of self and if you're the one that has mental health issues i think something similar can happen you can either be that person that's so focused on your mental health issues that you forget about your partner's needs or the flip side Where you feel guilty about your mental health issues. So you're just like giving to your partner too much and they are kind of railroading you and actually exacerbating your mental health issues. So within non monogamy, with all these lovers that, you know, can potentially trigger unresolved attachment injuries and all of this, it becomes, you know, so important that we are compassionate and that we don't minimize what's really going on which
1: actually might be quite complicated. (laughs) It is. I mean, you're really like right there. Everything you just said is the human condition when it comes to like interpersonal relationships with anybody. Like this is what we struggle with, with anybody. And then when we're having multiple romantic relationships at the same time, it's just like, it's, puts it on like expert hard mode if it were a video game where it just gets even more challenging but yeah
0: but the thing that's again you kind of touched on it earlier in the episode the thing that's good about non-monogamy is that it kind of shines a light on everything it's like you monogamy a lot of times all these issues just run dormant and it's really easy to be in denial and kind of asleep within non-monogamy it may be harder it may poke out at our attachment injuries but Just the fact that it pokes at our attachment injuries makes it so that we can't, it's way harder to
1: ignore all this stuff. And I think in the long run, it's a good thing, even though it sucks going through it. Nobody wants to have those hard conversations and feel like crap and work out their inner stuff and go to therapy. it doesn't feel good, but we know in the long run, it will benefit us.
0: Yeah. I mean, at its best, if you choose your partners well, it can create a lot of growth and uh, personal development but it it just really takes working on yourself and trying to love yourself and others well.
1: Amen. That is like, just take that listeners across the board, no matter what context you're talking about. If it has to do with another human being, just take that advice and apply it anywhere, even with yourself, even if it's yourself. Okay. So this has been a great, insightful episode with lots of juicy nuggets that people can use in all areas of their lives so thank you for that what's next because we're still doing our series or do we know yet should I not have asked you that question are we not prepared yet
0: I think the next episode you know which we're going to do two more I think in the next episode and I might change it a little bit but I think I'm going to talk about maintaining connection within non-monogamy and within maintaining connection within non-monogamy, we're going to talk about the things that can threaten connection, even if they sometimes feel good, like NRE can feel great, but sometimes it can threaten our other connections or, you know, typecasting, which I've talked about. And I've talked about, you know, different ways to stay connected in terms of the three pillars, the intellectual, emotional and sexual connection, and also talking about how BDSM and Tantra can be a way to maintain connection with our partners in long-term non-monogamous relationships. So basically the main topic is
1: maintaining connection within non-monogamy. Awesome. I cannot wait. Listeners, I know you can't wait either. Be sure you don't miss it. So go, please hit that subscribe button so you get notified when that episode comes out. And until then, we'll be seeing you go practice your like healthy interpersonal skills that you learned. Thanks for listening to American Sex. What's that? You want more? Well, you can start by streaming our TV show on Showtime, Sex with Sunny Megatron. Then pop on over to SunnyMegatron.com. Everything's there. You can get updates on my new book, check out my sex ed and BDSM workshops, learn how to book me for your organization or for coaching. You know, we also want to hang out with you too, right? So come join our Discord community or follow along on TikTok or Instagram, Twitter, all the social media. I'm Sunny Megatron everywhere. And you can catch Ken on Twitter or tune in to his weekly D&D games on Twitch. If you wanna support the show, a great way to do that is simply to tell people about it. Make a TikTok or a tweet about your favorite part of this episode. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review too. And if you're a ride or die American fucker, you're gonna to wanna to join our Patreon community. We'll send you official American Fucker stickers and you'll get a lot more too at patreon.com slash American Sex. Now, just in case you happen to be one of the few that still has disposable income in this late stage capitalist hellscape, well, when you're shopping for a new sex toy, BDSM gear, Kink Academy membership, or other things, please patronize our sponsors and affiliates. You'll get a discount and it helps us too. Win-win all those links and codes are in our show notes. Thanks, American fuckers. We appreciate the heck out of you. See you next time.